Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 27th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight I have a few things to say before we commence with our presentation of Romans. The ringleader of Christian identity's insane clown posse. This rabbi false accuser from Chicago, otherwise known as Joseph November, is constantly attacking me, and now he's calling me a race mixer and exhibiting a photo which is supposedly of one of my sons, which he is calling a hybrid. Well, I have now posted photos of all my children in an article accessible from the front page of Christogenia and, and from the Christogenia forum, which shows all of my children and one of my ex-wives as I knew them before I went to prison in 1996. And as the children look recently, except for one son, I have not seen any of these children since I went to prison. I've only spoken to the one son since then for various reasons. And, and of course, we've met many times. But this is nothing new. For the past five years, I have had these po photos posted at williamthink.net and only took them down a few months ago because I had plans to rebuild that website this year. My first wife was an Irish Catholic, and my second wife was a Polish Catholic. My first wife was blonde and blue-eyed. My second wife was brown-haired and brown-eyed. The families of both wives were all practicing Catholics and churchgoers. I had three children with each of them, but with the Polish wife, only two of those children lived to adulthood. The pictures posted in this article of Christian on Christogenia, pictures are posted of all of these living children, both as children and as adults, or at least near adulthood. Concerning the two sons of the Polish wife, I had to obtain their pictures from other places on the Internet, so I've also put the links to the articles where I found the pictures so that the sources and their identities can be ascertained with certainty. When I met my Irish wife back in 1983, she was apparently white. I accepted and believed her to be white, and I had three children with her. I don't have a picture of her with me so that I could post it on the Internet, but since my brother married her sister, and I have a picture of them in the article right now on Christogenia, it can be determined what she may have looked like. When I met my Polish wife, although she was brown-eyed and brown-haired and not quite as fair, I still perceived her at the time as being white when I met her, I met her family, and they all appeared to me at that time to be white, or at least I did not think at the time that they were not white, and I had three children with her. There is a picture of her in the article at Christogenia and on the forum. I fathered my first child with my Polish wife in 1988, nine years before I came to find Christian identity. Since coming out of prison, 
since having become quite studied in Christian identity and European history, I have always expressed to those who are close to me the possibility that my second wife, the Polish wife, the brown-eyed Polish girl, may not have been the ideal choice of a mate. But regardless of that, she is still apparently white. I have never hid any aspect of my past from friends or from listeners. Never. I have often talked openly about my past, my wives and my children, especially on the old Christagenia forum programs, which are still posted at Christagenia. Whenever the topics were raised, I was always open about my background, my family, that I was in prison, why I went to prison. I never hid anything. I'm the, the most transparent person in, in Christian identity. I fathered my first child with the Polish... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm getting behind myself. If either of my wives have something in a woodpile, so to speak, if either of my wives have any non-white ancestry, that I was not aware of in the 1980s when I met them, and that is the predicament that many of us are in today in this bastardized world when we seek a wife in a place like North Jersey. The world is sown with wheat and with tares. And that is what tares are. People who are difficult to tell apart from the wheat because in this last 200 years of race mixing in, in Europe and here in America, they have a smaller percentage of non-white blood. That's what a tear is. However, if and when we do discover that our spouse and our children have some non-white blood, we pray to Yahweh God to help us find a way out of such a situation because we know that he is just and that his law is good. The only proper example in that predicament for people in that predicament is the Ezra chapter 10 example. To put away our strange wives and those who were born of them. Having children with someone who later turns out to be a tear is not the same thing as being an advert race mixer. Marrying a woman who later turns out to have had a converso Jewish great-grandmother or, or an Arab grandfather or an Apache Indian in the woodpile is not quite the same thing as being a fornicator. Even Paul, speaking about unbelieving husbands and unbelieving wives in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he said, how do you know, husbands, if you shall keep or save the wife? How do you know, wives, if you should keep or save the husband? We don't know. We don't know if our spouse is a tear. We don't know if we're tears. That's part of our punishment. But if we're apparently white and apparently Christian, we have to accept those people and let the gospel be the dividing point. None of us have a complete genealogy, and none of us knows every one of our ancestors. But 
we know the law of God. And we know that if we want to please God, we are going to uphold his law. We know the ideal of what is white, and we are going to embrace that ideal. And all of those who have that in their hearts, who are apparently white, those people we love as our brethren, because we must know them by their fruits. Marrying someone who is apparently non-white, that is an outright sin, and that is fornication, and that is race mixing, and there is never any justification for that. But even of that, the scripture offers Christians an opportunity to repent. However, Repentance means putting away the strange wives and those who were born of them. Separating yourselves from the children who knowingly marry outside of their race. That's repentance. Separating yourselves from children who you know or you come to know are not of our race. That's repentance. Bruce Gorman, for instance, he's been attacking me on my very position on race, which is the scriptural position, and he is just such an unrepentant race mixer. Having half Filipino kids, he just can't let go of, so now he's hating on me. Eli James, he's in the same category. I've often said, that if any of my children are bastards, or even that if I am a bastard, so be it. That's life. The destiny for all bastards is the lake of fire, and there are no exceptions. A Christian does not read the Bible and then build a theology based upon his own personal situation. That's not the way to do it, people. A Christian reads the Bible, believes the Word of God, accepts the Word of God, and strives to keep the law of God, regardless of and even in spite of his own personal situation. To hell with your personal situation. If it does not conform to the law of God, change your situation because you're in the wrong situation. The Word of God cannot be changed because of the nature or status of men. The Word of God is immutable, and a bastard shall not enter into life because all bastards are broken cisterns, not having the Spirit of God in them through which the Adamic race alone has eternal life. We as Christians, we are to conform ourselves to Christ. We cannot expect Christ our God to conform himself to us. That's what the Judeo-Christians do. I have always been open as open as I can be, because I haven't seen my own kids 
in how many years? Since 1996, I have not seen four out of five of my own living children, and I've disowned them all. I have not, I have always been open about my past. Anyone who wants to see pictures of William Fink can simply go to the About page at ChrisTheGenny.org. You'll see photos of me from the time I was three years old, from the time I was three, 11, 12, 16, 33, and 48. They're all posted on, an, on the About page at ChrisTheGenny. Even my parents' wedding picture is posted there. So you can see what my parents looked like in 1959. Pictures of my siblings are posted there within my fifth grade picture, 1970 maybe. I'm kind of guessing. I think it was 70. As for these people that criticize me, Eli James, Joseph November, that's his real name, where the hell are his pictures? There are no family pictures of his anywhere posted on the Internet that he ever posted and said, I'm a Christian pastor, here's my family. I'm a Christian pastor, here's my wife. I post pictures of my wife all the time. She hates it when I post her picture. I love her, and I post her picture, and I'm not ashamed of her. I, 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 was, um, I didn't want to post a picture of my ex-wife. I sure as hell didn't want to do that. But there have been pictures posted of her on WilliamFink.net. One picture, this one part picture that's posted now at Christagenia for years. Now those pictures are not available because I'm planning on rebuilding the website. They'll be available again. But my about page, you want to see what I look like? You want to see what the guy you listen to looks like that, that's um, reading all this scripture to you? Go to the about page at Christagenia. I'm right there. So, my, so, so are a couple of my kids. So are my parents, my brother, and my sister. We're right there so that you could see what sort of family I come from. Where the hell are Eli James' pictures posted online? Where the hell are his parents? Where the hell are his kids posted online? What's he, what, what's he hiding? What the hell is Joe November ashamed of? That he travels the country speaking tours and, and, and church meetings and never brings any of his family with him. What the hell is he ashamed of? I mean, this guy, this clown's a, a Christ, so-called Christian identity pastor for 30 years, if you listen to him. Has anybody seen his family at, a, at an event? I've met Mark Downey's family. I've met Don Elmore's family. They weren't ashamed of their wives or, or their children. Not one bit. I, I've met a lot of other Christian identity pastors' families and seen their pictures. They weren't ashamed. What the hell is Joe November? What the hell can he talk about anybody's family or anybody's children? His, his daughter is married to a damned Egyptian. Yeah, I said a damned Egyptian because all those damns are bastards are damned. Now, my daughter, I disowned her. I stated the reasons why I disowned her. He, he looks white. He looks white. Blonde hair, green eyes. We could get pictures of, of, of him. But he's a Jew. I disowned my daughter the day she told me that she was going to date this Jew. I disowned her. I said, it's him or me. She chose him. Goodbye. You're dead. She's dead to me. She's written off. Send such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may live in the day of Christ. That's what we're told to do with fornicators. 
So she's dead to me. She has been since maybe 2001, 2000. I don't remember exactly. I haven't spoke to her since, not once. She'll probably tell you. Go on Facebook and ask her, Jennifer Marie Fink. Ask her, when's the last time you spoke to your father? She'll probably tell you. She hates me because I'm a hater. That's the, that's the breaks. Eli James, you, you found out that my daughter married a Jew from me. I, I was saying that five years ago, as soon as I started doing internet radio, I am open about who and what I am and what sort of family I have. But remember this. I spent 12 years in prison during my daughter's formative years. I could not raise my daughter being in prison 800 miles away in Michigan when she was in New Jersey. I couldn't do it. She didn't have my influence and my input. She was raised by the public school system and, and, and the damn Jew bastards that run it in Bayonne, New Jersey. That's how she was raised. Eli James's daughter, she married an Egyptian. Did you hear that from Eli James? No. You heard that first from William Fink on the Christagenia Forum. That's where you heard it. That's a shame to him. That's a shame. And he raised his daughter. He was never away. He was with her the whole time. He raised her. He's responsible for that. Now, we can't be responsible all the time for our families. We can't be. But I have always been the, the one that's been absolutely translucent. You could find out everything about me on my own website. I, I don't hide anything. And, and if any of my kids are bastards, if my, and either of my wives had something in the woodpile, well, they were apparently white when I, when I met them and made babies with them, and the pictures on my website demonstrate that. If they had something in the woodpile and my kids are bastards, then I understand their fate because the law of God says that every plant that he did not plant shall be rooted up. There's no doubt. Yahweh did not plant bastards. They're all going to the lake of fire, which means that, they, that when they die in this life, they cease to exist. That's their fate. That's the way it is. That could happen to any one of us. We don't know. That's part of our punishment because we don't have our genealogy. That's my position on my children, on my past, on my life, and I don't hide anything. Where are the pictures of Joe November's wife? Think about that. Think about this clown that's been a pastor traveling the country, doing Internet radio and websites for 30 years. Have you seen him with his wife? Has he posted a picture of him with his wife? That's what you think about. Has he told you about his kids? Not until I forced them. Think about that. And think about who is really true and transparent and has nothing to hide. Thank you for listening to that rant. I'm sorry I had to do that. I don't want to talk about I don't want to have to talk about my past and drag it out here. I don't want to have to post pictures of my kids on my website. I hate doing that. But I have nothing to hide, and there they are. So be it. It is what it is. Now to return to our primary 
purpose. In the last segment of our presentation of Paul's Epistle to the Romans, we completed Romans chapter 8, which, as we explained, summarized many of Paul's statements in the chapters which preceded it. Paul ended Romans 8 by stating that nothing could separate the love of Christ away from the creation of Adamic man, which in its entirety and without exception awaits liberation from the bondage of decay. Tonight we shall present Romans chapter 9, where, after explaining these things, Paul turns his attention to his Israelite kinsman in Judea. One cannot understand Romans chapter 9 without understanding the demographic makeup of the Roman province of Judea during the time of Christ. This is because an understanding of Paul's statements in this chapter and the chapters beyond 10 and 11, at least part of 11, as far as I remember, where he continues the same topic he presents here. Statements in these chapters hinge on two statements which are made here by Paul in the opening verses of this chapter. These are, in verse 3, where he expresses a deep concern for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh. And then he goes on to say that not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel. Seeing this, there are a few things which are clearly obvious. The first being that Paul is a racist, concerned only with those in Israel who are his kinsmen in regards to the flesh. And secondly, that not everyone in Israel at Paul's time is of that flesh, since not everyone in Israel is an Israelite. Paul is a racist, and not even the King James Version obscures the meaning of his statement where it reads that Paul has sorrow in his heart for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, as it is worded in that version. And from that point, Paul goes on to comparing Jacob with Esau and vessels of mercy, referring to Israelites, compared to vessels of destruction, referring to Edomites. To understand why Paul would say these things requires an understanding of the population of Judea in Paul's time. There is nothing spiritual about Paul's words here, since he himself professes that his brethren are according to the flesh and not according to what they may profess or claim to believe. In fact, his brethren, according to the flesh, he was concerned for them because they were denying Christ. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the Edomites were among their allies. Evidence for this 
is in the scriptures, at 1 Esther chapter 4, where, among, a, among other things, Ezra the, scribe, that Ezra the scribe had recorded, we read the words of Zorobabel, who about 70 years later, 70 years after the destruction, almost, said to the king of Persia, from Ezra, 1 Ezra 4.45, Thou also hast vowed to build up the temple, which the Edomites burned, when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees. This is verified in Psalm 137, which was a psalm written during the Babylonian captivity, where it says, Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom, in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundations thereof, referring to the temple. The Edomites, after the deportations of the, the Assyrian and the Babylonian deportations of the Israelites, the Edomites moved northward into the lands of Judah and Israel in large numbers. This is prophesied by Ezekiel, in the 34th chapter of his book, where it says in part, and I'll read from verse 1, And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel, prophecy and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. And they were scattered, because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate and cut off from it, him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with his slain men in thy hills and in thy valleys and in all thy rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. I will make thee perpetual desolations and thy city shall not return and ye shall know that I am Yahweh. Because thou hast said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas Yahweh was there. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will even do according to thine anger, and according to thine envy which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them what I have judged thee, and thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, and that I have heard all thy blasphemies, which thou hast spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given 
us to consume, and we'll speak more in the near future about why the Edomites and the judgment against them is connected to the shepherds of Israel, because this prophecy is for that time, and it's for today. But we see that after the deportations, the Edomites had made both Israel and Judah, meaning the lands, their own. And for that, they shall not go unpunished. The Edomites had taken over much of the ancient land and many of the cities of Judah and Israel after the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. And Ezekiel attributes these words to the Edomites. Thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess it. And they did indeed possess it. However, they did not at that time take Jerusalem to themselves. And we see in Nehemiah chapter 2 that when Nehemiah went to inspect the city for the first time, he could hardly get into it because of the rubble left from its destruction nearly 70 years before. I'll read from Nehemiah chapter 2, from verse 12. And I rose up by night, I and a few men with me, and I told no man what God put into my heart to do with Israel. And there was no beast with me except... And it, Nehemiah is talking about the land of Israel that he's visiting, because Nehemiah was in the Persian court and given permission to do this. And there was no beast with me except the beast which I rode upon. And I went forth by the gate of the valley by night and to the mouth of the well of fig trees and to the dung gate. And I mourned over the wall of Jerusalem, which they were destroying, and her gates were devoured with fire. And I passed on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the beast to pass under me. The translation isn't the greatest, right? It should have been, and there was no room under me for the beast to pass, the beast that he was riding on. That there was no room under the beast for it to pass, but the picture is drawn. And I went up by the wall of the brook by night and mourned over the wall and passed through the gate of the valley and returned. This passage illustrates that Jerusalem still lay in heaps of rubble upon Nehemiah's first visit there. As an aside, this passage also helps to serve to prove the Christogenia chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah, where we asserted back in 2011 when we presented the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, where is, where, that is one place where our chronology of the period can be found. We asserted that Nehemiah was made governor of Jerusalem a few years after this visit and served in that position from 502 up to 490 B.C. But Ezra was governor of Jerusalem in 457 B.C. And we established that. But 
the key point here is that when Nehemiah first arrived at Jerusalem to inspect it, as he had been granted to do from the king of Persia, he found it lying in rubble, and some places he couldn't even pass with the, with, with the animal that he was riding on. We don't know if it was a horse, a camel, a donkey. We don't know. Over 300 years later, after Nehemiah, the remnant of the Israelites, which had returned to Judea at that time, at the time of Nehemiah, had grown quite powerful. In the time of the Levitical high priest, Judas the Maccabee, and Maccabee is a Hebrew word which means hammer, they threw off the yoke of the Greek Seleucid kings who were ruling Syria and thereby gained independence for Jerusalem in the mid-2nd century B.C. Thereafter, the Maccabees, and, and that's kind of like their nickname, they were better known as the Hasmonean dynasty. From that point, from the mid-2nd century B.C., the Maccabees ruled Judea as kings. And a couple of decades after they came to rule, these priest kings, because they were actually Levitical high priests, somehow decided to subject and then to forcibly convert to their religion a lot of the people who were dwelling in the old lands of Israel and Judah who were around them. These people, for the most part, were the Edomites and the other Canaanites who had spread throughout the old cities and the countryside of Israel and Judah after the deportations. Obviously, by this time, the religion which was now called Judaism was only a corrupted version of the faith of Yahweh found in the Old Testament. Yahweh would have never allowed the conversion of the Edomites and the Canaanites. From this period of the Hasmonean high, high priests, which began around 156 B.C., the historian Flavius Josephus records battles by the early men of this dynasty, Judas Maccabee and his brothers, especially Simon, against the Edomites of Hebron, Marisa, and other towns, in which Marisa at that time was burnt. There were no recorded attempts to convert their enemies to their religion at this time. However, a couple of generations later, one of their descendants named Hercanus, about 125-126 BC, chose to convert the Edomites rather than destroy them. Josephus records in Antiquities Book 13 that Hercanus took Dora and Marisa, cities of Edomia, and subdued all the Edomians. Now, if we understand the biblical Old Testament, Dor, Dora is Dor, and Marisa is Marashah, and they were Israelite cities before the deportations. However, we see in Ezekiel that the Edomites moved into those cities. So here in Josephus, in 125 B.C., Josephus is describing Dor and Marisa as cities of Edomia and subdued all the Edomians 
and permitted them to stay in that country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. And they, meaning the Edomites, were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers, well, for 300 years anyway, that they submitted to the right of circumcision and the rest of the Judean ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans. I need a drink. Later, in that same book of Josephus's Antiquities, we see the much greater extent of the conversion of the surrounding Edomite and other non-Israelite peoples to Judaism, which took place while Alexander Janius, a descendant of, of these first Maccabees, was high priest and king, and he ruled from 103 up to 76 B.C., and Josephus says, But Alexander marched again to the city of Dios and took it, and then made an expedition against Essa, where was the best part of Zeno's treasures. And there he surrounded the place with three walls, and when he had taken the city by fighting, he marched to Golan and Seleucia. And when he had taken these cities, he, besides them, took that city which is called the Valley of Antiochus, and also the fortress of Gamala. He also accused Demetrius, who was governor of those places, of many crimes, and turned him out. And after he had spent three years in this war, he returned to his own country. When the Judeans joyfully received him upon his good success, now at this time the Judeans were in possession of the following cities that had belonged to the Syrians, and the Edomians and the Phoenicians at the seaside, Stratos Tower, Apollonia, Joppa, Jamnia, Ashdod, Gaza, Anthedon, Raphia, and Reno-Calora. In the middle of the country, near to Edomia, Adorn, and, Mar and Marisa, near the country of Samaria, Mount Carmel, and Mount Tabor, Scythopolis, and Gadara of the country of Golanitis, Seleucia, and Gabala, in the country of Moab, Heshbon, and Medaba, Lemba, and Aronis, Gelasan, Zara, the city, the valley of the Calichis, or the Calichians, and Pella, which lastly they destroyed because its inhabitants would not bear to change their religious rites for those peculiar to the Judea. The Judeans also possessed others of the principal cities of Syria, which had been destroyed. After this, King Alexander, although he fell into a distemper by hard drinking, and had a quartan, a goo, which held him three years, yet he would not stop going out with his army till he was quite spent with the labors he had undergone, and died in the bounds of Ragava, a fortress beyond Jordan. If Alexander Janius destroyed some cities, like Pella, because they would not convert to Judaism, we can be certain that all these other cities did convert to Judaism, to Judaism the practice of which 
Hyrcanus had initiated beforehand, 50 years before this time, when Alexander died about 76 B.C. Of course, from this point, the Edomites eventually came to dominate all of Jerusalem and Judea, including the temple, which they had full control of by the time of Christ. That is why Christ, in John chapter 8, conceded that the rulers of, te- of the temple and the, and, and the leaders of the people and the Pharisees that contested him, Christ conceded that they were Abraham's seed, because indeed they were descendants of Esau. That they were not Israelites is attested to both in that same chapter where Christ told them that they were children of the devil, the first murderer who could only be Cain. And in John 10.26, where Christ told them, but ye believed not, because you are not my sheep. They were not a sheep, because they were not Israelites, but Edomites. The links from Esau to Cain lie in the genes of Esau's Canaanite wives. From Greek and Roman records, we can see that from before the Hellenistic period, all of the southern portions of the land, once known as Judah and Israel, were being called Edomia, after the Edomites, which in the time of Christ was considered a part of the Roman province of Judea. It is clear from those records that Edomia and Gaza were a part of the Roman province. Many modern Jews attempt to deny the absorption of the Edomites, to downplay it, and to deny the Edomite adoption of Judaism. However, Strabo, the famous first century Greek geographer, he actually wrote about 50 years. He died, let's put it that way. He died about 25 AD, 50 years before the temple was destroyed, almost. Strabo supports the details supplied by Josephus, and Strabo attests that the Edomians were mixed up, as he called it, with the Judeans, and that, as he says in Book 16 of his geography, in Chapter 2, in Paragraph 34, the Edomites, or the Edomians, as they were called by Greeks and Romans, joined the Judeans and shared in the same customs with them. And that's a quote. That's from, that, that's from the Loeb Classical Library edition of Strabo's Geography. Josephus, in Antiquities Book 15, writes that as soon as Herod gained power in Judea, he despised the office of high priest, and he says in line 22, he also, meaning Herod, did other things in order to secure his government, which yet occasioned a sedition in his own family for being cautious how he made any illustrious person the high priest of God. He sent for an obscure priest out of Babylon whose name was Ananalus and bestowed the high priesthood upon him. 
Herod didn't want anybody who could possibly have fame and 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 the the, the will of the people behind him who would be in a position to overthrow him. So he just went and got this obscure priest out of Babylon that nobody knew and made him high priest. Herod didn't care about the high priesthood. Herod killed his father-in-law. His father-in-law was the last member of the Hasmonean dynasty to sit in the office of high priest. He was the end of the Levitical priesthood. Later, and uh, the Levitical high priest, let me put it that way, there were still Levites who were priests in, in lower functions in the temple, even right up through the time of Christ. Later, in Book 20 of his Antiquities, Josephus says, from line 247, that Herod was then made king by the Romans, he had bribed them for it, but did no longer appoint high priests out of the family of Hasmonius, the, the line of the Maccabees, but made certain men to be so that were of no eminent families, but barely of those who were priests, accepting that he gave that dignity to Aristobulus. For when he had made this Aristobulus, the grandson of that Hyrcanus, who was then taken by the Parthians, and had taken his sister Mariam to wife, he thereby aimed to win the goodwill of the people who had a kind remembrance of Hyrcanus, his grandfather that Herod slew. Yet did he afterward, out of his fear, lest they should all bend their inclinations to Aristobulus, put him to death. And that by contriving how to have him drowned as he was swimming at Jericho, as we have already related that matter. But after this man, he never entrusted the priesthood to the posterity of the sons of Hasmonius. Archelaus, also Herod's son, did like his father in the appointment of the high priests, as the Romans also, who took the government of the Judeans into their hands afterward. And, and let me say that um, Archelaus was banished about... I think it was 14 A.D. It may have been a little sooner. It may have been as early as 10 A.D. And from that time, the Romans were appointing um, political appointments as high priest. And that lasted until Herod Agrippa. And once Herod Agrippa came to power, Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa I and II were both pretty much favored by the Romans, and the Romans gave them, both of those Herods, the, the um, authority over the temple in Jerusalem, and with it, the ability to appoint the high priests. Back to Josephus, line 250 of Antiquities, book 20. Accordingly, the number of the high priests from the days of Herod until the day when Titus took the temple in the city and burnt them were in all 28. The time also that belonged to them was 107 years. Well, when I presented Acts, the book of Acts here, last year, I had demonstrated from the pages of Josephus that of those 28 high priests and of those 107 years, for most of that time, the high priests were of the sect of the Sadducees. The Sadducees 
it could be shown were Edomite by race, and they denied everything spiritual, and they denied God's hand in the affairs of men. And Josephus explains that elsewhere. Some of these, meaning some of these 28 high priests, were the political governors of the people under the reign of Herod and under the reign of Archelaus, his son. Although, after their death, the government became an aristocracy, and the high priests were entrusted with a dominion over the nation, all these Sadducees. And thus, much may, much may suffice to be said concerning our high priests. Quoting Clifton's Watchman's teaching letter, number 83, from March 2005, in that issue, he cited Eusebius's testimony that Herod had corrupted the office of high priest, and Clifton said, Eusebius speaks of this in his Church History, Book 1, Chapter 6, and my translation is by Paul L. Meyer on pages 34 and 35, where he quotes, When the line of Judean rulers ceased, the orderly succession of high priests from generation to generation fell into instant confusion. The reliable Josephus reports that Herod, once made king by the Romans, no longer appointed high priests of the ancient line, but obscure sorts instead, a practice followed by his son Archelaus, and the Roman governors after him when they took over the government of the Judeans. The same writer reports that Herod was the first to lock up the sacred vestment of the high priest and keep it under his own seal rather than priestly control, as did his successor Archelaus and the Romans after him. Not only this, but once Herod took power, he attempted to destroy all of Israel's genealogical records. And again, quoting Eusebius, it says, So Herod, with no Israelite ancestry, and pained by his base origins, burned the genealogical records, thinking he would appear of noble birth if no one were able to trace his bloodline from public documents. A few, however, carefully kept private records of their own, either remembering the names or finding them in copies, and took pride in preserving the memory of their aristocratic birth. Josephus tells us in at least four places that Herod was an Edomite in, in his histories. While Josephus does not summarize in detail how Herod had replaced the man who fulfilled the administrative positions of the government of Judea with those of his own tribe of Edomites, it is nevertheless evident in many places that he did do so. Among them, among those places, is the story of Costobarus. And this is from Antiquities, Book 15, from line 253. And Josephus says, Costobarus was an Edomian by birth, and one of principal dignity among them, and one whose ancestors had been the priests to Kozeh, an Edomite idol, right? Whom the Edomians had formerly esteemed as a god. But after Hyrcanus had made a change in their political government and made them receive the Judean customs and law, 
Herod made Castabaris governor of Edomia and Gaza and gave him his sister Salome to wife. And this was upon the slaughter of his uncle Joseph, who had that government before, as we have already related. When Castabaros had gotten to be so highly advanced, it pleased him and was more than he hoped for. And he was more and more puffed up by his good success. And in a little while, he exceeded all bounds and did not think fit to obey what Herod, as their ruler, commanded him, or that the Edomian should make use of the Judean customs or be subject to them. Castabaros, and that's the end of my quote here from Josephus, Castabaros was then described as having tried to overthrow Herod, an endeavor in which he failed. That the Edomians indeed retained the appearance of keeping the Judean customs and a Judean identity is evident throughout the subsequent chapters of Josephus's histories. However, they brought all of their old habits along with them, and it is clear that the nature of that Judaism, which later resulted in the Talmud, is absolutely contrary to the religion of Yahweh we see in the scripture. And this is one of the reasons why we see that Edomite pagan priests are being appointed positions of authority in Judea by Herod, this is one example of that. Later, in that same book, Josephus describes how, after Herod proceeded to eradicate the entire family of the Hasmoneans, which he even married into, in order to further secure his position as king, he then wrote in Antiquities Book 15, in line 266, that insomuch that there were now none at all left of the kindred of Hyrcanus, meaning the, the Hasmoneans or the Maccabees, and the kingdom was entirely in Herod's own power, and there was no one remaining of such dignity as could, to put a stop to what he did against the Judean laws. So he... They all pretended to be Judeans, but they trod all over the law. And that's evident throughout the pages of Josephus. And as we see in the words of Christ, it's evident throughout the gospel. With this conversion to Judaism, because we can no longer consider it the faith of Yahweh, by all of the Edomites, and the others dwelling in Judea who were not Israel. And with the corruption of the offices of the high priest by the appointment of men who were political rather than hereditary Levitical priests, and with the permeation of Edomites into all facets of Judean society, only then, once we see those things, can we begin to understand Paul's plea here at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. Verse 1, I speak the truth among the anointed. I lie not. 
my conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit. Now, the Codex Clarobontanus here interpolates the word for the name Yahshua, where the first clause would be read, I speak the truth in respect of Christ, Yahshua. The word Christos, with the definite article, it may be interpreted as Christ, and it usually should be, or it may be interpreted as a reference to the anointed, as the body of Christians collectively, the body of Israel, who have turned to Christ collectively. We shall expound on this interpretation at a later point in our presentation of Paul's epistles, as there are several places where the context clearly supports the veracity of our interpretation. And we'll give an example of one of those places after we present verse 2. That grief for me is great, and distress incessant in my heart, in verse 3, for I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed for the brethren, my kinsmen, in regards to the flesh. Now, most manuscripts read, for my brethren, except that the Codex Vaticanus wants the phrase entirely. It just says, accursed from the anointed, my kinsmen, in regards to the flesh. The text of the Christogenian New Testament, in this instance, follows the 3rd century papyrus, P46, esteemed to date to about 200 A.D. While we may interpret part of Paul's prayer in verse 3 here as that I myself would be accursed from the Christ, the phrase is rendered here quite literally, to be accursed from the anointed, where Paul must mean the anointed people, referring to the collective body of Christians, which are the children of Israel as a single body, the body of Christ. We shall do a fuller exposition of this use of the word at a later date. However, one example I'll offer here tonight in Paul's writing, where it is clear that the word is used to refer not to Yahshua Christ, the individual, but to the children of Israel collectively, one clear example is at Hebrews 11, verse 26, where Paul states that Moses esteemed the reproach of the anointed greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And we read that verse in that manner because it was not Christ being reproached in Egypt. It was Israel collectively who were enslaved and being reproached in Egypt. Israel, the anointed, the anointed body of, of, of the people of God. Furthermore, just a few sentences before this verse, at the end of chapter 8, remember that men made those verse divisions, right? That don't mean that topics and meanings change in between them. At the end of chapter 8, Paul explained that nothing at all shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
as the King James reads that verse at the end of Romans 8.39. Therefore, it is highly unlikely that here, if Paul said in that place that nothing could separate us from the love of Christ, meaning all of the Adamic race in that context, it is highly unlikely that here Paul is praying that he would rather be separated from Christ for his brethren. It is more likely that he would rather be separated from the body of Christians than see his brethren, his fellow Israelites, separated from the rest of the body of Christians. He would sacrifice himself for all of his brethren. That's what Paul is saying and separate himself from the body of Christians if they could be united to the rest of the Christians in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And in verse 4, he says, of his kinsmen according to the flesh, he's still speaking of them, right? Those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons and the honor and the covenants, and the legislation, and the service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom are the anointed, in regards to the flesh, being overall blessed of Yahweh for the ages, truly. As we explained in our presentation of Romans chapter 8, the word huiothesia is not adoption. It is the position of a son. Yet, even if one insists that it means adoption, Paul tells us here that this adoption belongs to the children of Israel, to the Israelites. It doesn't belong to anybody else. It belongs to the Israelites. The word for covenants in this passage, is in the singular in some papyri, as is the word for promises. Now here, in verse 5, we can translate the term for anointed here as Christ, interpreting it as if it referred to Yahshua Christ himself. And we would not be considered wrong in doing so. However, it is superfluous to do so because it is already by this time been well established through the gospel that Christ had indeed descended from the patriarchs of the Israelites and the house of David. But they are, Christ is not the subject here. The subject here are his kinsmen according to the flesh. By rendering the term as the anointed in verse 5, with the understanding that it is referring to the body of Israelites collectively here in this context is absolutely accurate. Since Paul is comparing the Israelites remaining in Judea to those Edomite Jews of Judea, it is these two groups which he is contrasting throughout chapters 9 to 11 of this epistle. The covenants and the promises and these other things which Paul refers to here from the Old Testament belong to Israel collectively as the anointed people of Yahweh and not to the Edomites with whom Paul is 
contrasting Israel here, which, as we shall see, is demonstrated by his comments concerning the promises relating to Jacob and Esau later in this chapter. We see here that Paul of Tarsus is first, indeed, a racist. He is not saying that the covenants and promises and service and legislation are for anyone in geographical Israel who believes. Rather, he is saying that these things belong to Israel, and Israel is reckoned according to the flesh. Likewise, in verse 2, Paul accounted his brethren and his kinsmen according to the flesh. He did not account Israel according to some esoteric, so-called spiritual reckoning. He did not account Israel according to a mere reckoning of profession. He counted his brethren and his kinsmen and Israel and the anointed according to the flesh. If Paul of Tarsus accounts Israel according to the flesh, writing this over 25 years after the Passion of the Christ, then there is no such thing as a spiritual Israel. And we today must continue to account Israel according to the flesh. Here we also see a clear distinction between Israel and the people whom we would now call Jews, who are those who rejected Christ. Here, Paul, in the coming verses, also explains why they rejected Christ. First, before we get to that, it, it has to be stressed that these people who Paul is calling Israel according to the flesh are not believers. Believing in Christ, therefore, does not make you Israel. In verse 6, Paul says, Not, however, that the word of Yahweh has failed, since not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel. As we have already seen here, Paul accounts Israel according to the flesh, not according to profession, and not everyone in Israel, which is a reference to the geographical area, is of Israel, which is a reference to the actual people of Israel. The Codex Claromontanus reads the end of this verse to say, not all those who are from Israel are they Israelites attempting to, ostensibly attempting to clarify Paul's language. Paul is telling us clearly that those who rejected Christ were not Israel. Those who, who, who the word of Yahweh has not, has not failed because those who rejected Christ were not Israel. Those who were not Israel cannot accept Christ. Paul is, Paul is, telling us this, just as Christ told those 
who rejected him, that they did so because they were not his sheep. The word of Yahweh does not fail. As Christ said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Paul is concerned for any of his kinsmen according to the flesh who had not yet heard his voice. The sheep in the Bible are nobody but the children of Israel. From Psalm 100, from verse 3, Know ye that Yahweh, he is God. It is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. From Psalm 95, the context demonstrates that only the children of Israel are the sheep of God's pasture. From verse 6, <clears throat> O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker. Remember Isaiah, where, where Yahweh says, O Israel, I have made you, I have formed you from the womb. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Paul quotes this next line in, in, in Hebrews. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. The text of this psalm at verse 8 sets the context for the statement describing the sheep of his hand. In verse 7, the sheep of his hand can only be those people whose fathers were in the exodus that's the biblical definition of the sheep, the children of Israel. In his first epistle, the Apostle John explained this same thing which Paul does here in a different manner. And John said in 1 John chapter 2, and I'll quote from verse 18, Little children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, even now, Many antichrists have been born, from which we know that it is the last hour. They came out from us, but they were not of us. What did Paul say here in Romans 9, 6? He said, not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel. The Apostle John says, related to antichrist, they came out from us, but they were not from of us. For if they were from of us, they would have abided with us. They would have been his sheep that heard his voice. But so that they would not, I'm sorry, but so that they would be made manifest that they are not all from of us. In other words, they did not abide with the Christians because they were not of Israel. They came out from Israel, but they were not really Israelites. So the word of God does not fail. But Paul was concerned for any of his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, 
who did not yet accept the gospel. John goes on to say in 1 John 2.20, yet you have an anointing, meaning you are the Christos, you are the anointed people, yet you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit and you know all. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because any lie is not from of the truth. Both John and Paul are telling us in their own way that it is the gospel which would divide the wheat from the tares. And the anointed people can indeed understand the gospel, but the tares, they cannot. Romans 9, 7, nor because they are offspring of Abraham, all children, but in Isaac will your offspring be called. Paul cites Genesis 21, 12, where Abraham was compelled to send Hagar and Ishmael away that they may not interfere with the inheritance of Isaac. And it reads, and God said unto Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Therefore, Paul, here in Romans, reinforces the meaning of seed in relation to the promises of God. That in Paul's mind, the seed are the offspring of Isaac and nothing else, referring to the descendants of Isaac. In the later verses of this chapter, we shall see that of those of the seed of Isaac, there are two types, vessels of destruction and vessels of mercy, because both Jacob and Esau came from the seed of Isaac. And Paul says, that is to say, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of Yahweh, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And Paul defines the promise. It's not some promise of some mystical church. It's the promise that in Isaac shall thy seed be called as opposed to Ishmael who is being sent away. The term children of the flesh, therefore, in this context, is a reference to all of the descendants of Abraham as a whole. But the term children of the promise narrows the scope of the promise and the scope of the gospel to those for whom it was specifically meant, for those to whom it was specifically promised, for the seed or descendants of Abraham through Isaac, and out of those, for the seed of Isaac, through Jacob, Israel. Paul is not spiritualizing the gospel. He is instead describing the very specific people for whom it was intended. Paul uses Ishmael here as an example, that even he is excluded, since the promises are specifically intended for Isaac. Therefore, if even Ishmael was excluded, we cannot imagine that anyone else 
who is not of the seed of Isaac can possibly be included because Abraham himself desired to keep Ishmael and he was grieved when he was compelled to send him away. And Yahweh told him, don't worry about it. Just do as your wife says. Here, Paul, reinforcing the fact that all of the promises and covenants of God of the actual descendants of Isaac is telling us that that has not changed. It's still that way. When he wrote his epistle to the Romans, it's still that way today. God does not change. And Paul emphasizes this where he says, indeed, this word of promise, this is the, Paul's defining the promise to whom the seed are. Indeed, this word of promise, at the appointed time I will come and there will be a son for Sarah. Paul was citing Genesis chapter 18 where it says from verse 10, and he, meaning God, said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of woman. She was no longer menstruating. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Her master, meaning Abraham. And Yahweh said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. The only people that are going to be in the resurrection are the people that came out of Sarah's resurrected womb. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou did laugh. I should say the only people to whom these promises were made in Christ are to Sarah's resurrected womb, to those people who came from Sarah's resurrected womb. And that is a sign from God of his power and the strength of his promises. And Paul is upholding that here. Although here Paul cites the promise as it was repeated in Genesis chapter 18, it had already been promised where it had been recorded in Genesis chapter 17. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. There's no Chinamen or no Negroes or no Mestizos in that seed. If there are, 
they would be bastards. They would be excluded because they are violations of God's law. Paul is upholding the fact of these fulfillments, of these promises in Christ, in Christianity, which is only for this seed which came from Isaac. And Paul is telling us that this seed are his kinsmen according to the flesh. They're not believers because Christ is the single seed. Paul is relating this seed to his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he's telling us that these other people who rejected Christ are not his kinsmen according to the flesh. That the word of God did not fail. Those who rejected Christ are simply not children of the promise. And not only, but Rebecca had also conceived from one by Isaac, our father. Paul is explaining that Rebecca had also conceived from a promise, referring ostensibly to the promise found in Genesis chapter 25. And I'll quote from verse 21. And Isaac entreated Yahweh for his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of Yahweh. And Yahweh said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So we see the promise Paul refers to are two nations, not one individual, Christ, two nations. And Paul is explaining here that one of those nations are his kinsmen according to the flesh, and they are the seed of the promise, not one single individual. Then not yet having been born, nor having performed any good or evil, that the purpose of Yahweh concerning the chosen endures. The purpose of Yahweh concerning the chosen endures. Not from rituals, but from the calling. To her it was said, the elder will serve the younger. Paul refers to Genesis 25-23 here at the end of verse 12, which we had just which we had just quoted, that the purpose of the chosen endures. The verb there is in the present tense. Paul here is demonstrating that in his day, the purpose of the chosen continues to endure. And that the literal, genetic children of Israel, therefore, must be the chosen. And they continue to be the chosen, even 25 years after the cross of Christ, when Paul writes Romans. There's no substitute 
for the chosen. Paul is citing the promise to Jacob, the promise to Rebecca, really, concerning Jacob, and saying that the purpose of the chosen in that promise to Rebecca, Jacob being the chosen, endures in his time as opposed to the children of Esau. That this has not changed from the time of the promise of, to Rebekah. The purpose of God has not changed, and the children of Israel are still the chosen in his time. Paul is teaching the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises to the patriarchs in the very descendants or seed which they were promised. Therefore, the Israel of the New Testament is one and the same as the Israel of the Old Testament. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Paul is quoting the word of Yahweh God, which is found in the opening verses of the prophet Malachi. From Malachi chapter 1, the burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And we'll explain this later on in, in, in this presentation, perhaps next week. Saith Yahweh, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. However, from Scripture, we see that Esau moved into Judah and Israel. We shall discuss this prophecy of Malachi when we present the later part of this chapter at, at greater depth. Paul is a racist. Paul is a racist. He only cares for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And they're not yet believers, according to Paul. That's why he's concerned for them. Perhaps they hadn't all yet heard the gospel or hadn't all yet understood the gospel so that they could accept it because they, they have ears full of Edomite propaganda. Paul is a racist, and Yahweh our God, he is a hater. Yahweh is a hater. Yahweh hates. Paul accounts Israel by the flesh and expresses concern for them in that manner. Paul's concern was not for believers, and his lack of concern was not for unbelievers. Paul's concern was for Israel, his kinsmen in accordance with the flesh, because many of them did not yet accept the gospel. And his lack of concern was for those who were in Israel, but who were not of Israel. Paul's lack of concern here is explained in this statement. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Therefore, Paul is making an analogy and those people where he says, that the word of God did not fail, those people who are rejecting him are the children of Esau 
who God hated. His lack of concern was for those Edomites in Israel whom God hates. The children of Esau whom Paul is about to describe later in this same chapter as vessels of destruction. Yahweh God hated Esau, and that hatred extended to Esau's posterity. And therefore we see that it is indeed biblical to hate. Just as David said in Psalm 139, Do I not hate them, O Yahweh, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Those last two verses are most important. David hated the enemies of God, and there was nothing wicked in that. But to understand exactly why God hated Esau, one must also examine the Scripture. Rather than pontificating or imagining for ourselves just how such things could be. Paul himself tells us elsewhere exactly what the sins of Esau were. In Hebrews chapter 12, where he uses Esau as an example by which to admonish the Israelites he is writing. From verse 14, pursue peace with all and sanctification without which no one should see the prince. That's an important admonition. Watching closely that not any are lacking from the favor of Yahweh, lest any root of bitterness springing up, and that's an allusion to Sodom and Gomorrah and the Canaanite peoples, lest any root of bitterness springing up would trouble you, and by it many would be defiled. It can also be an allegory for rebellion against God. nor some fornicator, nor profane person as Esau, who for one meal sold his own birthright. For you know that even afterwards, desiring to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he did not find a place for repentance, even though he sought it after with tears. So Esau was a fornicator and a profane person, Yet those are not even the terms appropriate for someone who merely bought a bowl of porridge. However, they are appropriate for someone who despised his birthright by doing the other things which Scripture tells us that Esau had done. Because Esau could only be called a fornicator for one reason, that he was a race mixer. Jude, the Apostle Jude equates fornication with the pursuit of strange flesh. It's also equated with the way of Cain, the error of Balaam. Joshua Christ in the Revelation describes the race mixing of Jezebel as fornication. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 equates race mixing with the episode in which the sons of Israel had joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. That's a race mixing incident and Paul equates that with the term fornication. Therefore, race mixing is a form of fornication. Looking back into the Old Testament, Esau was loved by his father Isaac. Yet the only things which Esau did to trouble his parents are described in Genesis chapter 26. And I'll read from verse 34. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Bashemath, the daughter of Elam, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind to Isaac and to Rebekah. Then in Genesis chapter 27, it is recorded that Rebekah engineers a way to ensure that the promises of the birthright, the blessing of Jacob, that these are passed to Jake, the blessing of Isaac, I'm sorry, that these are passed to Jacob instead of to Esau. Upon Jacob receiving the promises, Rebekah's statement to Isaac explains the reasons for her actions. And she says in verse 46, and Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth the people that Esau married. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these, which are daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? If God were not a hater, then it is Jacob who should have been despised for not having given his brother a bowl of porridge in his time of hunger. Yet Jacob withheld the porridge for a price, and a very high price at that, and Jacob was blessed for his actions. The only way that this act could be justified is that Jacob was right in his actions. When he took the birthright from Esau, because Esau did not deserve to have it, the only way it could be reckoned that Esau did not deserve the habit is because he was a fornicator, as Paul calls him, and from the Genesis account, it can only be determined that Paul was referring to his race mixing, because there's nothing else in Genesis that Esau that's described in Genesis that Esau could be held accountable for, that Esau could be esteemed as a sinner. Paul told the Hebrews in that same passage, Genesis, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, sanctification, which without no one should see the prince. Then Paul called Esau a fornicator and a profane person. Something sanctified in Scripture is something which is dedicated to God. And both Jacob and Esau were sanctified in the loins of Isaac when Abraham dedicated his son on the altar at Yahweh's request. 
something profane in Scripture is the opposite of something sanctified. Something profane means that that thing has been tainted, soiled, or handled in a manner which was contrary to Yahweh's law. Esau was profane because he had given himself over to Canaanite women, and only by his acts of race mixing was Esau a fornicator and a profane person. Paul also warned the Corinthians not to commit fornication, as the children of Israel did with the daughters of Moab. And therefore, we see several witnesses in these passages from Paul's epistles that race mixing remains a sin for Christians. Paul is warning them that without sanctification, without that separateness and dedication to God, no one should see the prince. In other words, if you're a bastard, you shall not see Christ at his return. You'll already be in a lake of fire. No, Christians are to pursue sanctification, and only Israelites are sanctified in Christ. Yes, the children of Esau are also sanctified. They're sanctified for a different reason. They are vessels of destruction. History and scripture have revolved around the descendants of Jacob and Esau ever since the sacrifice of Isaac. Ostensibly, Yahweh chose these brothers to personalize the struggle between the two seeds of Genesis 3.15. Esau, the fleshly man of the two, joined the ranks of the enemy in his marriages. Most men today are like Esau and not like Jacob. They marry, if they marry somebody white like themselves, it's probably an accident. They want to make their own way rather than follow the way. Jacob followed the will of his parents by taking a wife of his own people. Esau took the wives of Canaanites, and that troubled his parents. Rebekah understood that her life was worthless if Jacob had done what Esau did. Yahweh foresaw. He foresaw this and hated Esau from the womb. Esau is an example to race mixers everywhere. For all of the race mixers of the Adamic race show contempt for the heritage which they have from their forefathers. Jacob was renamed Israel, and Esau was renamed Edom. And while this is not the precise reason given in Scripture, the name Edom is really the exact same Hebrew word as the name Adam. What we have, ostensibly, is a parable illustrating the differences between the man who would follow the will of God, Jacob, Israel. Israel means he will rule with God. That's the spiritual man. And then there's the man who would follow after his own lusts, 
that is the man of the flesh, and that is Esau. After Esau had lost the blessing of the birthright, he sought to make repairs. And it says in Genesis chapter 28, from verse 8, And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had with Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth, to be his wife. But Ishmael had also been rejected as an heir to Abraham. And even realizing what he had done wrong, Esau never sought the will of his parents. Esau could not recover the birthright because he could not have it. He could not have it because he had no acceptable son to pass it on to. Yahweh foresaw the sin of Esau, and that sin should serve as a signal example to us today. Therefore, Jacob was destined from the womb to be the heir, as the circumstances of his birth presage. From Genesis chapter 25, we're just speaking of Rebekah, it says in verse 24, and when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out, red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. Esau later cried, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Esau despised his birthright. He blamed his brother for taking it away when he really had lost it simply by who he married. The taking away the birthright in the sale of the porridge was really only an act commemorating the fact that he never deserved it for being a race mixer. Jacob was named Jacob at birth because he had a hold on Esau's heel, a sign that he would supplant him for that birthright, which Esau himself then recognized. The fact that Paul is distinguishing between Israelites and Edomites, the fact that Paul labels later in this chapter the Israelites' vessels of mercy, the Edomites' vessels of destruction. And the fact that Paul references all these promises in relation to his kinsmen according to the flesh, all of this shows us it far beyond proof. It establishes with all certainty that the gifts, the calling, the promises the covenants, as Paul himself describes here, the adoption, the position of sons. All of these things, the law, all of the promises in Christ, in the New Testament, 
are along the same racial lines that they were in the Old Testament. Otherwise, all these words of Paul are for naught. And they're certainly not for naught. He's certainly making this comparison and using this to compare those in Israel destined to accept the gospel and those in Israel destined to deny the gospel. Paul is telling us that these racial differences between the Israelites and the Edomites and the promises of God bestowed upon Jacob and his seed, the Israelites, are the reasons for this division in the New Testament period. And that is what Paul is explaining here. Those promises have not failed, and they still stand today. And those promises are still along racial lines today. There's no doubt. Thank you for listening. We will be, be we will be back here next Friday, continuing Romans chapter nine and the story of Jacob and Esau. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther, part ten. Next Saturday, Brother Ryan. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening.